Streetlights are on, and you're listening to Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. To all you restless sleepers and midnight reapers, bleary eyed truckers in the graveyard shift, this is Brennan Store, and you're listening to Largely the Truth. Whether you're staring at a screen or the lines on the road, all is well, and for the next little while, it's going to stay that way. Because I'm here. You're there. And together, we're going to explore the night. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to Largely the Truth, the Internet's favorite podcast. The Internet just doesn't know it yet. I'm your host, Brennan Store, and this is the show where we talk to some of the most interesting people I can find and learn about their world, see what makes them tick. Of course, last week we spoke with Damn Good Liars, a fantastic UK band. If you haven't heard that show, You definitely want to do that. You also want to check out their debut EP, also called Damn Good Liars, and their latest single, Burning Beach. This week, we're going to be talking to another musician. And I got to say, I really love having musicians on the show, not only because I find them fascinating, uh, because creating music is a total mystery to me, but because I can edit bits of their song into the show. And I'm just a big fucking nerd like that. So (laughs) that's just, just something I like doing. This week is a special treat because I will be sharing with you an interview that I conducted in June. It was conducted for an earlier, uh, pardon me, an earlier iteration of this show. And if you've been listening for a little while, of course, you've heard me say that this show began as a weekly music show on an FM radio station. It then migrated to a private version, which was only available to subscribers. And now it's uh, this public iteration, which I'm really quite loving and has gone over very well, which I find deeply gratifying. But anyways, this conversation was done for an earlier version of the show, and so it's a little out of date, but only because the person we're speaking to is so prolific. My guest this week is Elliot Wilder. Elliot is an author and musician who performs as The Revenants, and as The Revenants, Elliot has released more than 120 albums in two and a half years. It's incredible. That's more than 1,000 original songs in a span of 30 months at most. And it's good stuff. It's really good stuff. You're going to hear snippets from some of his songs during the course of the interview. I'm playing this now because his latest album, Intruder, has just been released to streaming. And you'll hear a track from that release in full after the interview. But um, it's really, really great stuff. And Elliot and I are now working together, which is another reason I wanted to share this with you. But that's something I'll share with you after the interview. Before we get there, I want to remind you, if you'd like an ad-free feed or access to bonus conversations when they happen, sign up for $2 a month at patreon.com slash largely the truth. That's only $2 a month at patreon.com slash largely the truth. All right, now, get comfortable, because it's time to reach out to Mr. Elliot Wilder of The Revenants. I am here today with another guest. I'm very excited for this one. He is an author. He is a musician. He is, in fact, the most prolific musician I know. And somehow, despite all that, manages to make each release unique and listenable, which, again, let's face it, some of the artists we know, well, they release one album a year and they can't do that. So this, this is an achievement. I'm here this week 
with Mr. Elliot Wilder. Elliot, welcome to Largely the Truth. Hello, uh, greetings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know after, after the, the pre-show conversation, it's a bit jarring to have that tone, but I, yeah, I, I, hello. It sounds good. It sounds very intro-y. So uh, what do you want to know? <laughs> well, you know, man, I've mentioned you before. I heard your music first in January of this year. I heard Human Conditions, and yeah. I just fell in love with that album. And again, Cracked Wide Open, I, I think, is a magnificent, like, all your stuff is good, but Cracked Wide Open, there's something, for me, there's something special about that. It kind of sounds to me a little bit like, the way I described it was like uh, a summer afternoon in 1996, when the future is ahead of you and full of possibility. Let me, let me find the <laughs> so I can <laughs> look at it more closely and uh, know what I'm talking about here. Because sure, sure. There are times, honestly, when I forget. Like, I mean, the quantity thing, I, I can't really explain that too much. I know I kind of, I'm kind of manic um, and I kind of go through these cycles right. where um, I'll be kind of thinking about some particular specific thing. Right. And when I go to write songs and the way that I do it, like I'll have it kind of in the back of my mind. Like I, I'm thinking like, and I can use an album as a, the, an example that was probably the first album where I felt like it was really starting to come together. I mean, I basically have been kind of writing songs my whole life, but mostly shitty songs. Can I say that? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. I knew right. I'd, been, I'd been in bands. I lived in LA. We played, all the clubs in the, and this was mostly like the uh, late seventies and the early eighties, but there were bands that I was friends with that around that time that were kind of starting to make it. I don't know if any of these bands would mean anything to anybody, but the label slash, uh, which was part of Warner brothers, they kind of wanted to start up. X was X was on slash. Oh, wow. And, okay. and um, it was like a subsidiary where they wanted to do more edgy stuff. Right. And, and I was friends with this guy, Marvin Etzioni, who was in this band, Lone Justice, which was a kind of country rock, but with an edge band. They ended up uh, getting signed and they toured with like Tom Petty and U2 and they kind of all blew up for them. Um, they were on Geffen and their second album kind of got too produced and sort of took away what was unique. And after that, right. I think their lead singer, Maria McKee, is still like performing out there. But anyway, so like I kind of had that whole experience of like, you know, I was living in L.A., grew up there mostly. I, you know, and it was kind of where it was all happening. And I, I feel like being there, I was able to discover like being in a hotbed, you kind of figure out like, do I have what it takes? You know, I'm sure there here that I knew that were whatever it is to be making it at that time, getting a record deal. That was the first step. Right. Right. And I ended up working with Marvin and recording some stuff. I was in a band, but then we broke up. And um, at one point I had done it for like 10 years. And I just thought it's okay to walk away from stuff. If you just feel like you give it all you can. And I wasn't like thinking, I, I just needed to find out where the end point was. Cause it was taking a lot out of my personal life, being in a band and trying to do all that. And so um, I stopped and almost immediately 
I uh, went out and bought like a Canon A1 camera, which was, you know, like, and I was not at financially a good spot in my life. So buying that camera was like more than I could afford. And I had buyer's remorse immediately. I don't remember how much it was. It was hundreds of dollars, which at that time was more than I had. I, I took a course at UCLA with a guy who was a photographer who really knew stuff and taught us, first of all, how to go to work in a dark room and how to, you know, develop pictures and like right. what, what to think about, like conceptually, like don't just go out and take a picture of a homeless guy because it looks like it looks, you know, if you're going to do that, talk to the guy, establish a relationship. And absolutely. You know what, and I, I think this kind of leads to my music as well, because, um, I wasn't thinking ever that I'd do music again. I just, I, I really, I got myself, a, built myself a dark room and then decided that what I want to do is like kind of capture sort of portraiture of people. And then a lot of these photos that I took, I had a couple of small shows in LA, but ultimately I've used them as the most of, most of the album cover art is, the, is from that. I wonder done, if that was all your work. Yeah, mostly where it is. And I've put, you know, like Astrid, my daughter actually did one of the covers and I put their name on there. And it's interesting that I started to think much more conceptually, like as far as like um, how things interrelate, like what, you know, even with a person, I would photograph them uh, at one point and then years later I'd photograph this, them again and, and just follow the arc of their life. And I'd often get their story because I had this little studio and, you know, mostly we would just talk. And it made me really kind of move in, a, in that way so that there was a connectedness between, it wasn't just random pictures. I mean, they may look random, but <laughs> I, I felt that there was a thread. And then um, when I moved to Boston, which was to be in a creative writing program at Boston University, I'd been working at the LA times for 18 years and I thought I need to change my life. Rilke, change, you must change your life. Right. <laughs> so I moved here and then the writing program was kind of a bust. It was, it was unendurable for me and I learned a lot. Um, stopped writing fiction, but at the end of it, I, I met some woman and she had a little studio in her, in her house in Cambridge. And, Somehow we managed to kind of start collaborating. And I hadn't done music for 20 years at that point. And um, it was interesting because I felt like it was an old muscle kind of coming back into finding strength. Right. It didn't work out with what we were doing, but it got me kind of thinking about wanting to do music again. And then I, uh, in, the, in the Fenway here, I live in the Fenway in, in Boston. There was a recording studio that I didn't know about. There's also Berkeley. So there's a lot of musicians around here. Yeah. Berkeley's music is right, right here. And I met this guy who was an engineer and he had gone to Berkeley and I had like sketches of songs and he would be, he was very encouraging. I was paying for it. And it was a lot for me that it was a lot of money, but we worked together for about four years uh, and I made four albums. It was much slower. <laughs> I, could, I would go maybe once a month right. and, I, and I'd record for a full day, but it was, he was very efficient. Turns out this guy could play, his name is Dave Westner, just to give a shout out. 
if I'd say, let's put a banjo on this. Cause I saw a banjo on the floor and he's like, well, I don't really play banjo. I'm like, well, just, you know, just see what happens. <laughs> like, okay, that's all you need, you know? And, but he was also a drummer and a, ba- a awesome bass player. And so when a drummer is a bass player, you know, they really know where the, where the pocket is, you know? Right. And when we'd, we'd sketch out like on acoustics with a click track, and then he'd go in and do the drum part in like one pass. And we, and we didn't even have the song arranged. The drums, and which is something that I've always liked, kind of helped me arrange the song. I go where the, where the rhythm is in the song. I try Right, to. okay. And I learned so much from him. And his style was kind of like very organic and like Ringo-y kind of drumming. But as we were doing this process, I started to kind of, um, to save time, I would demo stuff at home so I could come in with something more than just me sort of hashing it out on acoustics. And so I started to kind of figure out GarageBand. Okay. And each time I came in, it was slightly a little bit more than, you know, just, you know, I had kind of an arrangement going. And then the more I got into that and I could start sampling things, and this is also kind of things I learned just, well, from listening to records like Introducing, like what you can achieve and there are a lot of things like uh, contact is a nice kind of, uh, you know, you can develop your own samples using different things so that they're still yours. Right. Especially with drums. I mean, decades ago, it was like they sounded pretty bad when they were a synthesis of drums instead of like real drum sounds. And now you can, right. You can get like what a, a real drummer playing, but you're kind of telling him, okay, put the fill there or, you know, do the downbeat here or whatever. So it's, right. <laughs> it's me. If I were, I'm not a drummer, but I know what I like. Basically I've always tried to recreate whatever, whatever Dave Wessner did, you know, cause he just always knew where to put the right feel into the song. And I think I learned a lot from that. And then I just discovered that, I mean, I, I don't, I, people do play on some of my stuff. I get somebody like, will send me like a stem. I'll, I'll like send them a track and say, can you do something on this? But mostly it's me kind of figuring it out. And I don't really prefer to be um, alone doing it. And in fact, if you listen to my stuff, I think I, they deliberately put things in to make it sound like there's like a band playing. Like I leave, I'll let things bleed. And, you know, at the end of the track, you'll hear little things. And it's, it's not like I'm trying to trick anybody, but it kind of helps me because it makes me feel like it is a band. It's a kind of, it is like the revenants, which, you know, the, even the significance of the title of like kind of <laughs> rising from the ashes almost, you know? Absolutely. Um, and, and if you if you hadn't told me, I mean, obviously, once I started researching you, I, I sort of assumed it was it was just you on the records, but it doesn't sound like that to just hear it. And and I think that's one of the things that really appeals to me. It's it's like um like you listen to the say the Pogues um Rum Sodomy and the Lash and If I Should right. Fall from Grace with God, you know, If I Should Fall from Grace with God feels so much more exuberant because everyone's in the same space, right? And it feels like that, which I think is a hell of a thing considering you're producing it yourself. And, um, you know, and, and playing yourself like that, that that's a, a real, real cool thing to have done. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> you know, it kind of, it gives me like uh, an opportunity, like 
you know, with the vocals, which have always been kind of an iffy thing for me. I just, I finding, I mean, I think the thing that I've learned was, especially like being in a band and you when you're young, you're just kind of shouting because it's loud and you're trying to get over and the monitors may not. And I didn't, we, yeah, we did stuff in the studio, but I, I didn't know what I was doing. Sure. I mean, I, I was just a kid and I wasn't a natural singer in any way. I would listen to John Lennon and if he, you know, when he's saying, give me some of that rock and roll, you know, when, when he, he would just like let it all go. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. But being on my own, I actually, you know, can very much hear what I'm doing. And it, and um, usually when I'm recording a track, I'll take everything out, but like the bass and the drums and maybe acoustic so I can just really, f- I'm not, I don't want to compete with all the guitars, you know, sure. uh, or anything else I put in there. So I'll make it very stripped back. So, and then when I do the harmonies, I kind of, you know, sort of steal from Brian Wilson. I, I will, I will sing all the parts separately and then puzzle them together. Oh, okay. And so, <laughs> sometimes it works. Each album I, I discovered in speaking of like the contextual thing that carried over from the photography was that once I sort of get on the subject of a thing, I feel like I want to explore it. Like the Mercy album, which was for me the first album that I did where I was trying to come up with um, like 12 different ways of, of looking at that idea of the quality of Mercy. Right. Without being super obvious and not being one to be a concept album or anything like right. that. But I thought, you know, there's, there's been albums where you feel like all the songs are somehow interconnected in it thematically. Oh, sure. And of course. So I guess that was kind of what I was, was trying to do there was trying to, you know, there's, there's many ways that you can look at an idea or a feeling, you know, and I, I don't always do it. Um, but there have been other albums where I like, I definitely had that particular thing in mind and I wanted to try to see what I could come up with. And actually with Mercy, I started that in like 2014 <laughs> and I had it and then I dropped songs off of it, remixed it, added new songs and just kept fiddling with it. And now whatever version is it up that's up there now, which was came from like this past year is I think it's pretty much done. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much I mean, done. Okay. Cause the thing is, is when you're not really like, like known, like no one knows what, who you are or what you're doing, um, you can get away with a lot more. And I have remixed full albums and then reposted them with Bandcamp allows you to, like, if you have a single track that you maybe remixed, you can slip it in there and no one's, no one's the wiser. And in fact, I've taken songs where I thought the entire song, I, I just, I guess I just didn't like it that much. And then I rework the track and maybe you all keep the lyrics and see or, or modify the lyrics. So it sort of is the same song, but a completely different feel. Interesting. And, and I've done that many times. I don't know if anybody ever picks up on it. So quite a few of the albums sort of follow a, a particular thread. And um, it's just me trying to really personally consider like, the various aspects of an idea because it's, you know, nothing is ever one thing, you know, everything is everything. 
And so, you know, and certainly like 12 different ways of looking at it is not all the ways of looking at it. But yeah, if you were to look at the Mercy album, you'd have to like listen to understand that each one really really does touch in some way on that, on that notion, Uh, you know, and to me, mercy is like, you know, it's, it's like a generous, uh, you know, like showing to another human being that, that they can be forgiven. And, um, and I I think a lot of (laughs) that idea, like, um, kind of floats around in my, in my work, the idea of forgiving and being forgiven. Uh, it, it's interesting you say that because it, as, as you say it, it, that very much pings. I very much, I, I hear it now in, in a lot of your stuff. There is that sense of, um, of, yeah, of, of looking for forgiveness or thinking that the things can be forgiven. Is that an impo- something important to you? Is that sort of a thing you've kind of discovered in your life, if you don't mind me asking, or is that just a, sure, a general yeah. sense? I don't feel like I've ever tr- deliberately tried to hurt anybody, but mm-hmm. I've, I've been in re- a lot of relationships. I've been married before and, um, in fact, I can give a, a specific thing so I don't have to keep it all vague because I figure, what the hell? You know, <laughs> There's a song I have. It's on Weeping Songs. And there's a, there's a song on there, the last track, called The Weeping. No, it's just called Weeping Song. And I'm not singing it. I met online uh, this woman, Jen Glockner. Um, I mean, I just heard her sing, and I, I approached her about it. And I was really very pleased that she said, yes, I really liked her voice. And I mean, I never met her or anything and I never even actually talked to her. It was all just, you know, emails and texts. Anyways, the song, speaking of forgiveness is, um, I was married before to some woman and her mom uh, committed suicide. This was many years ago. And uh, there were a lot of, there was a lot of fallout from that and including the, ultimately that marriage came to an end and I know it had a lot to do with it, the, the suicide. So I carried that around with me for a long time. And part of it is, you know, the, her mother was pretty committed to doing this act and no matter probably whatever we tried to do to intercede was never really ultimately going to get in the way of that. Yeah. But that doesn't still take away the feeling that you might have that in some way, you could have done something to stop it, you know, to just tell a joke at the right moment or some that would, uh, um, but that, you know, that was, that never, uh, she, she died. So there was no going back there. And um, so it's an example of how I, you know, that had happened many years ago, but I um, finally got to a point where I felt I could kind of write a song about it. And it kind of reminds me a little bit in a way of a Nick Cave kind of song, just the sort of the cadence of the words. And you know, basically I said, what if I'd been there for you? Would you still be alive? What if I had held your hand? Would you have survived? This is the weeping song, and I weep for you. This is the weeping song, 30 Shades of Blue. And, I mean, the words are kind of simple. In fact, the reason why I liked uh, The Love and Spoonful was because they had this sort of conversational they sound like the lyrics always sounded like the way people talk, I thought, which was appealed to me. It wasn't fancy. It was just kind of like you felt like the, that they were talking to you in a language that was plain spoken. And, it, and that always affected me as a kid when I heard that. I'm, you know, I didn't intellectualize it. I just heard it. And so, um, 
you know, when I was first writing lyrics, I was, you know, I was an English major. I wanted to, them to, you know, be fancy, <laughs> <laughs> show off all the big words I know. And, and, and over the years, I mean, if there's a word that I feel is appropriate, I will use it. But, you know, like this song, in the way that it's performed, there's like a cello and then a violin and they're very, they kind of saw against each other and back and forth. And then the way that uh, Jen, you know, I didn't give her any instruction. I said, there's a line in there that goes, boo-hoo, put this boo-hoo in there, but do it in a way that doesn't sound jokey. Right. Uh, that was the only instruction. And she came back with, I, I mean, it just, it's still when I listen to it, it kind of blows me away because she's her singing kind of she has this low harmony and then her regular melody voice and they saw back and forth in the way that the cello and the violin is so she kind of picked up on that and created this very um it's very moving this is the weeping song It's like a voice will occur to me, a song, you know, and I'll think, I better go write that down. And a lot of times in the, in the olden days, I would just let it go. And I, now I just, I go for it. I, I always go for it. And sometimes it's not real successful, uh, you know, but sometimes I feel like this is kind of close. This, is, this hits near to where I want to be. And, and it's almost like the more you listen to that voice, the more you feed it, the more you, you when it says something, you take it down the more it right. cooperates with you. Exactly. Like, I know not to get cosmic, but I feel I'm not a re particularly religious person, but I feel like there's like a vibration in the universe that sure. a harmonic of vibration, not, you know, not in a kind of cosmic you know, way, whatever, but there just is, there's a sound. Sure. And sometimes if you're listening, you can reach up and kind of, pull down bits and, and use that and, and have that be part of what you do, you know? And, and I try to just listen and, 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 and when something comes to me, I open the door, I'm like, come <laughs> on in, you know, it's yeah. like, I'm not, if, cause I could see like, you could easily either not hear it or not want to be bothered because also it's not just a matter of opening the door, but letting in this vibration plus whatever feeling that you're having when you're making it, to be honest, a lot of times when, when I'm, you know, if it's, if the song is truly emotional and meaningful for me, I, I'm, I really feel like I'm feeling it. I mean, like I'm not, I'm singing the way that I sing for good and for bad. And, but it, it, it feels authentic to who I am. And if someone likes it, that's great. If they don't like it, I can't do anything about that. You know? I will never be on American Idol, I don't think. That's not, that's not where I fit. I mean, I think that's uh, more of a gift than anything. I, uh, I'm, I'm always depressed when I watch shows like that because I feel like people, they see that path as the only acceptable way to become a musician or, or a, a, you know, a, yeah, a musician or, or a, a singer. You know? and, and I think it's so, it's so sad because that's such a cruel ecosystem, especially for a young person who is that naive. And, um, you're just, you know, they're going to use you and they're going to throw you away. Like I was, uh, a little while ago, I heard an interview with uh, Rory Kaplan 
the guy who used to be uh, Michael Jackson's guitarist. And he was saying, or sorry, um, keyboard player, keyboard player. And he was saying that, you know, the system is so different. You know, there's, there's no, uh, I shouldn't say no, but there's so little investment in the future of artists anymore. You know, you don't get to have that sort of license to ill and then Paul's boutique moment. And you're sort of, you are the thing you are until that doesn't sell. And, you know, you might sort of get like a really kind of ham-fisted transformation that they, the, the, you know, the machines pop out and say, oh yeah, the, we think we could go this way next. Um, but really you're an expendable commodity. And I think that even comes up in your book about uh, DJ Shadow's album, Introducing. I believe towards the end, um, Shadow talks about how the system which allowed him to make introducing and that, that ecosystem he was existing in at the time, that doesn't really exist anymore. No, yeah, that's right. Um, I think that it's more like, especially like the, the singing shows, whatever that's popular now, they're more about producing personalities than artists. You know, you, you want to, you, you're a personality first. Right. And I think that's why, and to go back to like, uh, what's her name? The young gal with the, the green hair, Billie oh, Eilish. Billie Eilish. I, I watched that documentary with my, with my daughter, you know, and I like her voice. It's, it's, she's kind of in this, and this is just my thought, she's kind of in this sort of place that she could develop to become a, a, an artist or she could be end up more like Lady Gaga, who's great in her way. But sure. more, she, Lady Gaga is more like a personality. She's more like an actress. I mean, she's, she's great. She's saying she can do it at all, you know. But, you know, it's like you, the, the, the people with staying power hopefully are the ones that have created works of art because that's what usually tends to hang around, you know, and long after the flash is gone, you know, you tend to forget like, who are the people on American Idol? I know some of them are on chat shows and all that, Yeah, but you know, it's, it's not like they're developing people to, you know, I mean, to, to make art, that's not, that's, that's not what that's about. So absolutely this age that we're living in, it is so incredibly different than what I grew up with. And, uh, and I just see it for what it is. And I I don't really care anymore uh, other than just, I want to make stuff. I want to make it, make my stuff before, you know, I run out of time. And um, that's my main motivator. And um, I, I get up at like three in the morning and, Oh, wow. uh, and I'm, I'm at it. Um, I'm doing, I'm doing it quietly and, and I have to kind of do it around my wife and my kid too. She works from home, you know, that they still, she's just about, I think we'll end up going back to work pretty soon. And my daughter had virtual school for last since for a year and a half. Of course. Well, I just yeah. want to jump in and say, um, there's a lot of people I, I think we're going to, uh, listen to your music just so they can sort of hate listen to it, knowing that you produced this many albums from home while you're working around two other people who were working from home and going to school. Because right. I bitched about being stuck in our two bedroom apartment uh, with my wife and our two cats saying, oh, wow, I can't do this. And here you're out there producing a discography better than a lot of the people I know. So uh, there's gonna be a lot of people coming for you after this one, Elliot, just be warned. I, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I, I, re- I realized okay, uh, the volume, the amount is, is kind of ridiculous, I think, for me, even to, to contemplate it. But again, it's like, 
I'm not doing it to make a lot of albums and have that be the impressive thing. I'm just trying to express certain things. And as long as the machine is cranking it out for me inside of me, then, and I have the facility to do it. Absolutely. And just to be clear, when I'm, I'm, I'm teasing you about the number of albums, I, I don't think it's done for a, a particular, you know, sh- uh, show offy reason. I just, it's, yeah. it's because I am so sometimes so difficult to motivate to create, I enjoy it, but it's so hard to get me to do the goddamn thing, even though I like it. So when yeah. I see someone who, who has sort of reached a point where they can access that creative part of themselves regularly and continue to enjoy that and, and pursue that, I just think it's, it's remarkable. So I, I mentioned it not again, I'm not, uh, it's not certainly not a criticism. I people in, in uh, admiration of this thing. Well, thanks. Um, I mean, I think also, you know, I, I've got actually more albums, not like I've got them all queued up. There's like a draft mode in Bandcamp, right. so I can just go click and they're out. Um, and I, one thing that happens often is I'll, while all the albums that are kind of like sitting on the, in the incubator back there, every so often I'll just, I'll, I'll go to them and I'll play them and I'll think, you know, that isn't that great. Right. So they, haven't, they haven't been launched out yet, so I can kind of melt, I can mess around with them more, you know. Sure. And often because they were, you know, all seem to be written in chunks, although I do, at times I've borrowed songs from other albums and maybe redid it because I thought it fit in to, to whatever I was doing. Right. Um, but um, I can kind of mess about with those before, like the one I, the new one, Turtles All the Way Down, there were like seven or eight songs that I really liked on it. And then the rest, the rest I thought didn't, I wasn't too keen on. And so just kind of went to work on it. And I like came up with four new songs. And now I, I think it's, I think it's all right. And like the song itself, which is the last track, Turtles All the Way Down. It's an old expression. I don't know if you've, have you ever heard it before? I haven't. Or rather, I should say the title sounded familiar, but I didn't know why. I do I feel like is to create things that seem familiar but you've never heard it that way <laughs> like I'll throw things I'll do a twist on an idea you know and you know I like to make things that so when I hear it I go that this feels familiar to me but I've never really heard this you know yeah. it, it'll be a start of me that I just sort of step back from what but um what turtles all the way down kind of means is that the world is I'm, I'm probably not putting this the most articulate way that's possible but the world is imagine the world with like we're on we're all sitting on top of one turtle right and underneath that turtle is another turtle and underneath that turtle is yet another so we kind of see the world in this sort of one-dimensional plane of our own existence but beneath all this there's this sort of eternally regressing universe that uh or the ideas that you know we think are so sound you know, our belief systems and kind of tends to fall apart. Something you said about uh, taking something familiar and trying to, and, and, uh, or seemingly familiar and then twisting it really reminded me of, you've seen the film Crazy Heart with Jeff Bridges? Yeah, yeah. So there's that moment when he composes the title track, The Weary Kind, um, where when uh, I think it's Maggie Gyllenhaal says, you know, that I think I've heard that before. And he says, no, you haven't, but the best music makes you think you have. It feels like it's always existed. And 
do you again some of your stuff is is very much like that like it there is and so what you're doing it works again like human conditions or um i can't remember the title the the most recent album or not the most recent album uh the, the High, highway 46 revisit yeah 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 there's some stuff and and there's others that again i, I don't have the names to hand but they hit that chord, that sense of this must, this can't be new. And, and, and I've felt that as I listened to as much of your discography as I have thus far, is there's so often that sense of like, how this can't just be one guy making this in his apartment in Boston. Like this has to have come from somewhere. I, I, like, personality disorder. <laughs> <laughs> just in terms of like their, this, the weight of it, that's, I sort of assumed that uh, before we got in touch, uh, when we used your song on the Ghost Story Guys podcast, I sort of assumed that maybe this was something like, like a career of music. You had just kind of Tupacking, you know, you kind of had all this stuff uh, backed up in, in, you know, some legendary series of sessions and you were just releasing. So it's again, what, what you're, I mean, not, not to be overly complimentary, but what you're doing is really, really connecting. And to that end, actually, I'm kind of curious, is there a reason your stuff isn't on the streaming platforms like Spotify or Apple music? Money. <laughs> I just, you know, I kind of collect gear and whatever and, and samples and things. And I, I feel like I just don't want to ask too much of my, in my living situation to, you know, cause it takes money to run this and I'm not really making, how we're making a bunch of money. That would be easier for me to, to yeah, put it up on other platforms, but to, to buy into all those subscriptions and all that, I guess also, I mean, if I felt like there really were to be a payoff, like, would I just be, you know, what's going to, what's going to promote, who's going to promote my stuff on, on Spotify or whatever. It's just going to be one of billions of things up there. And I'm, I'm not, I don't have a defeatist attitude. I just want to be realistic about it. Sure. That's know, fair. If, if maybe one day, okay, someone with a lot of pull came along and said, kid, I'm going to take you places, you know, I'd go, <laughs> right. sure, I'd go for that. Um, that's never really happened for me. And, um, and I, you know, I know people that, that have made it uh, or whatever that is. And, you know, I'm not really received a, a lot of, I, I find it difficult to ask for help. And I don't even know, like, if it's appropriate for me to do it. I understand. Um, I, to be honest, so much of what you've said on this conversation (laughs) and, and I haven't wanted to interrupt, but we have so many similar experiences in regard to the way we approach art, the way we approach people. Um, it's, it's been really fascinating for me to hear this because I, I'm the same way. I, I started actually properly writing in 2009. I, cause I I grew up in a high school in a mill or I grew up in a mill town, graduated high school. And then didn't know what to do. My family had a, a grocery store, a deli. So I worked there for well, until we sold it basically. And then I moved out to the West coast, uh, met my wife and I've just worked a series of labor jobs, you know, and it wasn't until 2009 that I thought, man, there's, there's this part of me I'm not accessing. There's this right. part of me, like, I just feel something's missing all the time. And right. so I started writing uh, restaurant reviews of all fucking things, a blog you know, who cares? Right. But it was, it sort of was the thing that, that tapped the well. And, and obviously I went through some rough times there cause I didn't know how to be a writer. I didn't know how to, you know, like my mother's greatest aspiration for me was to be a waiter in a high-end restaurant. Like, and that's not an exaggeration. That's, that's what we knew, right? That was, that was the, the apogee of, of, uh, of, of success as far as she knew, cause it was, you know, it was full time and you got tips and you could make great money. So I didn't know what, 
you could do for money writing. To me, that was just wasn't something you did. So I failed spectacularly in my first attempt at it. And then finally, I, I decided I was going to write a book. Point being, it took me about four years to get there, but I got the book out. And ever since then, you know, it's been sort of a progression. Like once I've, I've been allowed myself to enjoy those things and to accept that, okay, you know what, I'm good at this. And if I, if I, if I just do this because I like doing it, maybe shit will happen. And it's, it very much sounds not obviously not a one-to-one comparison, but the, the two stories sound, you know, th- there are similar notes in, yeah. in, the, two, in the two well, stories. And, and it, people struggle, you know, I mean, everybody and, and everyone has their own reasons for doing it. And, um, but like you're saying, you know, there's a, there's this book, actually, I was just reading it recently about by, uh, to mention Rilke again, about the letters to a young poet. And like, it's, a, it's about, it's an actual correspondence between Rilke and a guy that was at a military academy. And actually Rilke was younger when he was younger, he was also at a, the same military academy. And he identified with this kid because when he was there, when Rilke was there, he was, he, it was hell for him. Right. And he was trying to, this writer, this young writer was sending Rilke his poems and Rilke was, generous enough to respond. And then they made a whole book out of the correspondence, which was pretty amazing. But one of the things, you know, it always goes back to that thing. If you feel like he was saying to the writer, obviously you want me to respond to your stuff and give you favorable feedback and, and tell you that I think you're good and that, that you will one day be a success. And he goes, says something to the effect of, you must stop that right now. Yeah. The only person that can, that can tell you that you're any good is you. And this, just through determination and desire and some talent, you might be able to pull it off, you know, but he gave a lot, he dispensed a lot of advice. And a lot of it was really older Rilke talking to himself because he never got that himself when he was, when he was that age, you know, someone to tell him, here's some things to think about. But the thing that resonates is that one of the few truths in life is that if you have it in you, you cannot not do it. In other words, that you feel compelled and that no matter what happens, you still just want to keep doing it. Then you, then you should, and you will. You know, I did stop doing music, and I, but I went right into photography, which eventually led me back into music. And then I can see full circle bringing the art, the photos back into using them so they serve some purpose. <laughs> yeah. I'm 66, and there was never a time in my life when I, when I wasn't trying to make stuff. I didn't think, I'm an artist. I just made stuff. Right. And the only thing I can have it compared against is growing up, there was a woman who I'm still friends with from high school. I actually knew her before high school. Her name is Lee Salgado, and she is a great artist. And her stuff, she, she lives in L.A., and her stuff gets shown, and she lives off of it, which or a manual artist, like she makes these unusual sculpture paintings that are very intricate and she uses exacto knives and really worth checking out. One of her pieces is hanging at LAX, you know? Okay. I have like respect for her because she's stuck to it. And, and, and we're very, we're very similar. Um, we were involved at some point, but <laughs> It, it didn't work out, but we stayed friends. And I'm so glad because she's the only person that I, that I know from my childhood, really. And when I know that I'm at a place with my work, I know there's some person that's you know, been there 
And that's really good to know, you know, and yeah. as far as talent goes, I mean, I, I, you know, I rate her much higher than I do myself. She's just, she's a, she's just a, a real character. And I'm glad that I, I, I can see this experience in somebody else. So I know that I'm not alone. Absolutely. And, and on that subject, I'd like to move uh, into talking about your book, Introducing. If I can remember it, but <laughs> go ahead. I'll see what I know. I don't know. For our listeners who don't know, and God help me, I, I guess there could be out there now because I know we have some patrons who are in their early 20s who would have been very young when this album was released. Uh, introducing, of course, by DJ Shadow. If you don't know it, you have to. It's, it's one of the probably most legendary albums of that time. And it was released in 2004. Is that right? Oh, no. It was released in... No, 96. No? 96. 96, yeah. Because I remember before I moved here, and I, it totally changed everything about how I listen to music. I remember when I, the day I got out, I was going into work. I worked a swing shift. And I listened to the whole thing on the way to work. And I'm like, wow, what is this? The way I got into doing it was, so I was writing for this music magazine called Amplifier, which was a Boston based, but I think it was national. It was a, like, not, it was like above a zine, but it right. wasn't, wasn't in your higher echelons of fancy magazines. But I ended up editing a lot. And through that, uh, I got to interview, I remember the beta band, Air. I would go oh, to New cool. York. Right. And they'd have junkets. And I would go down and whenever like, somebody was releasing an album, I got to interview Nick Cave, who was like, I was terrified of. It was him and me alone in a bar. Oh, wow. And, and, I, and he was at the end of his day of being interviewed. And the first thing he said to me was, this woman from, I can't do his accent. He's just like, he's the woman who interviewed him was from some crummy music channel, TV channel. And he was just like mad because <laughs> she thought she was a moron, didn't know anything about him. And then he and I just hit it off. It was like, I brought him some chocolate <laughs> and sort of softened the blow. And he's like, I don't really eat these, but I'll give them to my wife. And then, you know, and we were kind of more about the same age. So it was really great. You know, I got to meet like a lot of interesting people through that. But during that, I was interviewing the lead singer of this band, Pernice Brothers, and the lead singer of the Pernice Brothers. I was taking pictures of them in, in this garden for the article. And he's a nice guy, you know, and he's like, uh, and he said, you know, I'm working on this book for this 33 and a third thing. It's not really come out yet. Um, and he did Smith's uh, Queen's Dead album. Anyway, so he said, you should think of picking something. And he gave me the name of the editor. And so they'd had like the Kinks and I think in the first run and they had Harvest by Neil Young and then the Smiths and I think maybe Radiohead or something. And I thought, what can I pick that would be something no one else would pick? And so I thought, introducing. And I pitched it to the editor who was like, sure. And they gave me a, an advance. It was very easy that way. I've never experienced that before. I was going to um, say that, that's a, that sounds wonderfully easy. I'm, I'm a deeply envious. Yeah. I'm sure they don't, they, they do a call every year now because it, it's a, not been going on and I'm sure it's probably a lot more difficult to get in. Anyways, then I had to get a hold of DJ shadow. So I, I had no, I, no idea how I was going to do that, but I've been, you know, interviewing people for a while there and knew that there were ways. And so I just, first thing I did was I called, um, it was on Moax, but it was being distributed by Universal uh, MCA. I called LA. I'm like, 
you know, you have this artist, DJ Shadow, and they're like, who? <laughs> no idea. And I called New York and really got the same thing. Really? Like, they didn't know who he was. Um, and I'm like, well, it's, you're distributing it. You're, it's not like an album, you know, it's like you picked it up from Mo Wax from England. And I went through several people and so I thought, well, this is getting me nowhere. So then I remember I saw the documentary Scratch, which is a great hip hop documentary. This is from a while ago. It's still out there. Great, great. You know, it like goes back to like, how did, uh, how did scratching start? And it was like, a, you know, a guy in his room with no money for records. And one day his mom comes in with saying, turn it down. And he went, turned around and went, Whoop, you know, across the needle, across the record. And he's like, and that's when I learned. <laughs> um, but there's all these great things in it. And at one point there's, there's shadow. And he's like at this place called records in Sacramento. And he sort of has his special room there that they give him, or at least at the time. And the documentary wasn't very old at that point. So I thought I'll just call records in Sacramento, which I did. And I said, you know, I know that uh, DJ shadow comes in there every so often and I'm going to be writing this book. And I'd like very much to, to talk to him. If he comes in, can you give him my number? <laughs> I swear to God, like a couple of days later, ring, ring. Hi, this is Josh, you know? And I'm like, that's oh incredible. God. That was incredible. I, so I pitched him the book and we, we decided to make it an interview thing. And we put aside all this time. He was extremely articulate and very cooperative. And we kind of went through like him starting out. We sort of moved chronological and, um, there was very few that he, very few things he couldn't remember. And I was really astonished. And, and also listening to like how he went about doing it. And I, I know like some people have knocked it for like, I didn't list all the samples, but a lot of them honestly were not legit and probably still aren't. Right. So, I think he specifically says that there are certain samples that were not cleared. And so he doesn't want to name check them for yeah, that so reason. And for me, I didn't want it to be about the samples. I wanted it to be about him and, and his thoughts. And, what, and, right. and, you know, and I kind of, you know, I, there's very little that I, I said more, but I edited all that out. You know, I wanted it to be about what he, what he thought, you know, where he came from, what made him want to do it and how he did it. And I still think it's a real landmark album. And I think it's a kind of an albatross for him because of course, when you do something like that, especially right out of the gate, like, where do you go? He was young and he kind of went from being like, nobody knows who he is to like, he's rubbing shoulders with, especially in England, he was much more accepted there. Right. And, you know, and he, he kind of was able to kind of, when he came back, like his album was already on the rise there and he, said he came back and it was like, back to Sacramento and nobody knows who the heck I am, you know? <laughs> um, but he's, he's a very interesting guy. And I learned a lot again, like how you can, create sonic worlds just on your own. The thing that I remember the most about it, I, when I, after we moved to Boston, I was working like on the other side of, the, of town and I'd walk home at night down like Beacon Street or whatever. It'd be you know, kind of snowing and very cold, something I wasn't completely used to. And I had that on the headphones. It was like my soundtrack to Boston. To, it really be, even though I'd heard it in L.A., it be, I listened to it over and over and over every night. And so it was kind of a real honor to be able to talk to him. And, you know, he's just a guy. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I mean, I just think he did something that no one else really, and, and there are other albums that I feel that are on par with that, but I think that's really like, like you mentioned, Paul's boutique. I think that's another really pretty, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, amalgam of, it's like, again, the familiar, which certainly, you know, your Beatles, you know, you know, and all that, but those guys are amazing. I really miss them. You know, so. Yeah. Even, even their last album, you know, to the five boroughs, that was a, I believe that was the last album. That, that's a great record. Yeah. They, they were great all the way through. Actually, the weird thing is, is they um, live when I lived in LA, they lived, I, I didn't know this at first. I, I thought I kept seeing one of them around and I lived in this area it's between um, there's an area called Silver Lake and Atwater. Okay. And they, they built their studio in Atwater and, the, oh. and there was a little Italian restaurant and that called Osteria Nani. And I used to see them there. And I'm like, what the, this, this is not the kind of place you'd expect to see anyone. I mean, there's plenty of stars all around Hollywood or whatever. Sure, yeah. This Silver Lake was more kind of funky and, and Atwater was even funkier. And, but yeah, they did it because it was cheap. <laughs> right. And they had their studio. They did like three or four albums there. In fact, if you watch this documentary, I'm like, oh my God, there's Asteria Nani. In fact, one of their uh, EPs, uh, Aglio e Olio, yep. that's, a name of, that's a name of a dish at, at a oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's where they got that from. It was from that restaurant. So it was, you know. That is really cool. Of, yeah, it was, a, it was a nice connection. I, you know, I, I, yeah, just seeing them like, and there's a very famous picture of the three of them standing around a sign that says Atwater and they're all pointing at it. You know, you can like Google that and see that. So it was, it kind of gave that little neighborhood a little bit of credibility for about five minutes there. (laughs) And I was going to say, I mean, at a time when Silver Lake was considered um, reasonably priced, I mean, that that we're talking, this is a little while ago now. Yes. Um, In fact, when, we took our daughter back to LA a couple of years ago, just so she could, she's never seen anything other than Boston. And I like Atwater. uh, I think what happened was is as, as gentrification moved through Silver Lake, Atwater was sort of next because it's right next to it. Right. And um, like where there was like little mom and pop, like a little Mexican restaurant. Now there were like chairs, you know, on the sidewalk and there was like a fancy thing, this and that or whatever. Yeah. And there was a record store there and I'm like, Oh my God, this, this is just crazy. But you know, the money had sort of moved in and like the house that we lived in was a two bedroom duplex. And for years I was paying $500 a month for rent. <laughs> but <laughs> my landlord who's me, rest in peace was a drug dealer. And it was like these, uh-huh. uh, it was, I didn't figure this out right away, but, there was like a, like a parade of people going there to get some pretty hard stuff. And the cops came a couple of times. And then we thought, how safe are we living in this? We're we're not, we were connected, but you know, it it just, he was our landlord. And so it was, it was kind of dicey. So, but the rent, well, we just couldn't say no to it. Um, But all that's gone now. And uh, in fact, Dick, my landlord ended his career with, in LA, it's very big to have helicopters flying overhead. And, you know, well, one day in the afternoon, they were like right over where we lived. And we lived on a cul-de-sac. And right next to us was the LA River, you know, famous for the sure. scenes in Terminator and all that. And a lot of activity happens on that river. And um, the helicopters were flying overhead. And all, I look out the front window and I see Dick 
coming around the corner in a Mercedes coupe, which he had. I thought it was his. Turns out it wasn't. <laughs> the wheels were off the the rims. You know, the the it was he was just grinding on the. Oh, on. No. He was coming around the corner, and he jumps out, and he runs on the. And the cops are after him with <laughs> with like guns, big guns. Oh, Jesus. And they get him, and then they take us. They like, you live in the front house, and we're like. Yeah, <laughs> like, we need to go access the backyard, which we, for years, I never even wanted to know what was going on back then. And it was a chop shop. Oh, for Christ's sakes. <laughs> 20 cars back there, and they're all in various. So it made it cheap. And you, I don't, you don't have to put any of this in, but it was just like a kind oh, of no. a. This is brilliant stuff. It's the original subsidized, <laughs> the original subsidized housing. Somebody's going to come after me after I say, it's like, no, cause they're all gone now. Um, and then after we moved here, our, our neighbor sent us a Christmas card and she said, um, happy, uh, ha- Merry, Merry Christmas. By the way, Dick's in jail for attempted murder. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that Tom Waits uh, song, Christmas card from a hooker in Minneapolis. <laughs> yeah. We're like, dad, we're out of there now. So, um, yeah. but that's also where I had my like photos, uh, I had like, we had an extra room and I turned that into a little photo studio. So it was, you know, there were a lot of, lot of really good things and, you know, people run down LA. It just kind of depends on where you live and your tolerance for driving crazy traffic. Yeah. I, I, to be honest, I love LA. I joke, but I, I actually, I I used to, before the pandemic, I would go down there. I try to at least once a year uh, because I just love the energy of the place. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, having spent some time in New York and, you can't compare them. They really are so different. And, oh, absolutely. But they really do have a kind of, you sense you're like, wow, this is, this is pretty neat. <laughs> Obviously with New York, but LA, I mean, I live mostly like in that Eastern, like Los Feliz at water, Silver Lake, like around that area. I never really kind of moved much further than that. And if you wanted, we had friends like lived in Venice. And if you wanted to get over that, that was 20 miles, you know? Oh yeah. And you're still in LA. Yeah. So that, like, like in Boston, in 20 miles, you're in Maine. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Close to, but it's it's like it's a different way of being. And um, I, I I feel like I had that experience. I wouldn't necessarily ever want to move back, but you know, and it was nice showing my daughter around. And, and there were still some places like House of Pies. Of course, I was picked up by a very sketchy Uber driver from House of Pies and was being taken to completely the opposite direction from where I wanted to go and was deeply concerned for, for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, the hospitalized is still there. Um, it, it's just a, you know, like the service is still terrible. And, um, <laughs> but, but it's um, open 24 hours and you can get pie. It is. And, and when you're in a band, where else are you going to go? That's it. Get, it's two o'clock in the morning. Go get a piece of pie. It, it was funny. Actually, you talked about getting up at three in the morning and starting work. I typically like, uh, my, my, my hours usually 10 a.m. to about 2 or 3 a.m. That I, I, I function best in the evening. So it, I like to, it's good to know there's someone capable handling the morning shift just as I'm going to bed. Yeah, I find it to be weirdly a creative time to just, because, you know, I'll just have a thing of coffee and, you know, I, I know I've got a couple of hours there where it's going to be uninterrupted. So Yeah, Absolutely. Astrid says, sometimes I hear this noise in my dreams, but it's in my dreams and it doesn't seem to really bother her. And my wife has like double earplugs in the pillow of her. So, <laughs> yeah. so like, I, it kind of, uh, you know, she sort of 
muffles it all out. I don't know. I don't know what our neighbors think, but I don't really care. So I was going to say, if they're not banging on, if they're not banging on the wall, then uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, odds well, are it's been Airbnb by someone and it's empty anyways. So the building that we live in now, they had some affordable units. It was, it's, it's for Harvard medical students. Oh, okay. Because the Harvard medical, we're not in Cambridge, but the, the hospitals, there's a huge, what they call the Longwood Hospital Complex or whatever they all call it. There's like 20 hospitals right next to us down the block. So all these medical students live here. They put a few units aside according to whatever their the mandate is from the city for affordable. And it's not that affordable, okay? Oh, yeah. Trust me. I, West Coast is, is pretty bad. I, I sympathize. So we, we kind of fit into that. And then, then we, and we moved in here and it's a two bedroom and, and uh, um, we had we, to, for, for Astrid to go to the Boston Latin school, we have to be living in the city of Boston. You can't go live in Brookline or Newton or we couldn't afford to live there anyways. But <laughs> yeah. so, so we, we stayed and um, the areas like been crazy developed like these out there, this giant building is going in across the street. Yeah. Um, that's going to wipe out whatever view we have. And um, it's like the developers have choked the life out of the neighborhood. It used to be kind of, other than the baseball park, there's kind of nothing here. And, yeah. and now it's just towers filled with, you know, transient people, you know, go to the work at the hospitals and they go back to wherever. And um, so it's kind of lost its sense of identity and community. And I'll, I'll actually, a lot of that's in my music. Um, you know, I've written many songs. And, you know, it's a, we do have a connection with certain things left in the neighborhood. There's a thing called the Fenway Victory Gardens, right. which is a public garden that you can get your own for $40 a year. You get your own spot of land. And um, and we, we go there just about every day. And you can grow anything there, um, as long as the rabbits don't eat it. And actually, um, um but um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see like how a developer can move in. And I know this is happening all over and just sort of seize every parcel of land and turn them into these hideous giant, well, we're living in one of them, you know, these apartment towers and then yeah. charge outrageous rents, you know. When well, my friend, I, I had a friend who went to BU and uh, he paid, he was paying 1600 bucks a month, if I remember correctly, for a room in someone else's apartment in Alston. That makes sense. And, and I just know, couldn't believe Alston, it. You're like great, you know, neighborhoods as far as like what you're going to get. And in fact, you know, I mean, and Boston is essentially a college town. I mean, everywhere we look, there's a college right, right. around here. we got Northeastern right next to Astrid school. There's like about five or six private colleges. And there's BU, which I can see right from my window here, Harvard, and what's in Cambridge, but there's a lot of leakage over into here as far as campuses go. So you're kind of contending with that always. But despite all that, you know, a lot of that ends up being fuel for, you know, like feelings of displacement or what, it, what it's like to live in a neighborhood that one, when we lived here first, it was the neighborhood. And now it's, you wake up one day and it's like, it's a tourist destination, you know? Yeah. Like there's a lot of amusements here now for people who want that sort of thing. And, um, and it attracts 
tourists and people, you know, flock here after the baseball game, there's like many things that you can do now. And it kind of leaves the person who's the part of the community living here kind of out of it, you know? Sure. I'm, again, I live near a cruise ship terminal and a uh, float home part, like a, a, a wharf where a bunch of house boats are. And both are massive, obviously massive tourist destinations. So it's, uh, I mean, not, not at the moment because of everything, but I, I sympathize completely. Victoria has become a hard place to, to, to live. You know, we're lucky because we've been here 11 years. So our, um, our, sorry, we've been in this apartment 10 years. So they, they can only raise our rent 4% every year by law. Right. And we got that same sort of thing. Here. But if we moved, we would not be, because we have a, a pretty nice two bedroom. But if we moved, we would not be able to uh, stay downtown anymore. I think we would have to uh, relocate further out. It was because where we are, we can walk downtown. My wife can walk to work. You know, I can walk to, there's a grocery store at the end of the end of the street. Uh, but yeah, there's no way in hell we could afford to stick around here. Yeah, I know. It's like, that's the trap is that, like I said, I don't drive or I prefer not to. It's been rough during the not being able to take the subway, you know. Oh, of starting, course. Starting to again. In fact, we have like a subway stop directly like on the other side of this building. So it's, it's always, you know, there's always a way to get around without having to drive, but, uh, and having, we have a grocery store and, you know, there's a Trader Joe's not far and all that. So it's, it works out for that. But like once Astrid is done with Boston Latin, I think, you know, with all the, the development, they're already putting up another building behind the one that they're putting up right there. And the, the constant noise, is it really is very distracting. So there are other neighborhoods, like there's this place called Jamaica Plain. Oh yeah, I, I is, had a friend living in Jamaica Plain. Yeah, and it's 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 not that cheap there either. Like you get a two bedroom and a what they call triple decker. You know, like their houses are three stacked up. Oh yeah, yeah. A two be- it's about half a million. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're not that great. You know, they're old. And uh, but. So maybe we can find something away from here. But yeah, I mean, all, again, all that kind of like, it gives, it gives me stuff to think about, you know, like what, what's that like? And, you know, I joined like neighborhood committees to push back against development and kind of saw firsthand, like really what goes down and oh yeah, it's, it's pretty discouraging. Yeah. There, there's a really great podcast out of Vancouver because Vancouver is, I think it's the most, it's tied, it, it might be the most expensive um, real estate market in North America at the moment. And there's a podcast out of there called This is Van Color. And the, he talks a lot with people about uh, these neighborhood groups, which are actually funded by property developers to push for gentrification by framing it as a, a safety argument. And it's when you realize what you're what you're fighting against. Yeah, discourage it, it can be discouraging. I mean, there is next to the tower next to us. Uh, sorry, next to us, there's two towers. One of which I mentioned, but there's a, a green space between the two of them, and it's not a huge green space, but it's a place where the people from the two towers can, you know, walk their dogs or have a smoke since they've banned smoking in the building. Um, but now the developer is looking to put a 24 unit tower there. And we're trying to push back against it because Jesus, as you said, you know, it'd be nice to be able to see the sky. Yes. And, and, and very, very soon we won't be able to, I mean, we used to have it. The one thing that this unit had was this clear view and we can see all the way to Cambridge from here. And now this thing that they're building here is going to be, I don't know, maybe 20 stories high. And then that leaves, and then there's a building to the left. that's an older building. 
And there's this kind of like gap in between the two. And behind that is going, we just found out this week is going another tall building. So that's it. And virtually everybody then eventually, like this building face, there's a 30 story glass tower on the corner of where we live. And the far end of the building I'm in had was, it was like where it went up like 15 stories and they had a clear view. And now they, their view is of the bedrooms of the people who live <laughs> 15 feet away from them. So, you know, everyone in the end kind of gets, gets sort of screwed when this sort of development happens and, you know, it, but it doesn't drive the property values down for some bizarre reason. Yeah. A view of someone taking off their pants and wouldn't be kind of, yeah, you don't want some, to see that. Some people pay good money for that. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all about perception, you know, perspective rather. Yeah. Um, and I was just going to say that sort of takes us all the way back to, to Pink Floyd, you know, goodbye, blue sky. And uh, I figure that's probably as, as good a place to wind it up as any. Elliot, thank you so much for being here, man. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, I was very nervous to reach out in the first place because I like, <laughs> what's that? I was nervous to talk. So, oh. you know. <laughs> well, I think we, we both did. Okay. So, yeah, right. so again, thanks for being here. I'd love to have you back sometime. I'd love to hear more stories about your time working in for the LA times and, and things like this. But uh, un- until next time, I'm wondering where could folks find you? Where should I send people to look for the revenants? Uh, well, it's the, the revenants one, uh, dot bandcamp.com. Perfect. Definitely check out the revenants. It is, uh, some music you need. It'll feed your soul. All right. That's the ball game. Thanks again to Elliot Wilder for hanging out with me back in June and for, uh, well, the other thing, which we'll talk about here in a moment. For now, though, don't forget that the latest Revenants album to be released to streaming is Intruder. You can find that pretty much everywhere you listen to your tunes. And his latest Bandcamp-only album is Je T'adore. I'm sure I'm getting that wrong, but uh, you can find that at therevenants1.bandcamp.com. And that leads me to what I've been hinting at, or outright saying at one point, is that when I spoke to Elliot back in June, his albums were all on Bandcamp and Bandcamp alone. They were not available for streaming anywhere. And so over the last few months, I have formed the independent label Night Harvest Recordings, which you've heard me reference once or twice in the outros here. And Night Harvest is now responsible for releasing all of Elliot's catalog to streaming. So his entire back catalog, basically up to, well, Intruder, which was released in August on Bandcamp, that is all now on streaming. More than 110 albums on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, Amazon Music, YouTube, pretty much any streaming platform you can think of, the Revenants albums are there. Now there's a delay, so basically anything that Elliot releases to Bandcamp now won't be available on streaming for probably another four months. At the moment, as I said, Intruder just came out. The next album to be released to streaming, which will be about 10 days from when this comes out, is The Revenant. And then two weeks after that will be Strange Song, and it goes from there. I believe the third album in the queue is Little Bastards, which is sort of a, an, a, a bluegrass-heavy album. It's really great stuff, and again, you can buy your digital copies with much higher uh, quality sound at therevenants1.bandcamp.com. Also, I can't stress enough, Elliot puts a huge amount of work into these releases, not just the music, but he also designs cover art, uh, using his original photographs. He also designs the interior trays 
for or the gatefolds for LPs. It's really, really brilliant stuff. And you only get that if you buy it at therevenants1.bandcamp.com. And I seem to recall promising you a song, didn't I? Okay, so played in its entirety. This is a leadoff track from Elliot's latest album to hit streaming, Intruder. This is The Rose of Jericho. I need 
So thanks again, Elliot. Uh, at some point, we're going to have to get him back on the show because again, there's been a lot of music to talk about since then. And as I said, I love playing it for you. So it's, it's really one of those things that just kind of works out. On the topic of Night Harvest, we're obviously still pretty small because it's just me running the thing, but we also have on the roster Peter of Bizanta Music. His Lo-Fi Beats albums are now all available on streaming. That includes a Lo-Fi Evening 1 through 4, Beat Night 1989, and a couple more of the names of which are escaping me at the moment. And I'm in the process of getting the catalog for the Russian hip-hop duo Pandas Dlia Invalidov, which I'm again, I'm probably mispronouncing, onto streaming platforms. Peter is one half of that duo as well. And we have, at the moment, just one of their albums up. That is their album three, but there are more coming. Finally, the other artist we have on Night Harvest is one I'm particularly proud of, and that is Rain is Wet. Rain is Wet was a popular band that played around Ann Arbor, Michigan in the mid-2000s. The group recorded one album, Such a Way to End It, in 2006, but they broke up before the album could be mastered and released. Well, it turns out that in 2019, I did a little bit of work with Travis Roy, who was the vocalist for Rain is Wet, and we managed to get Peter from Pizzanta Music to properly master the album so it could be released. And so Rain is Wet, such a way to end it, which was, again, thought to never ever see the light of day, is now available on streaming platforms everywhere, and I really do encourage you to check that one out. It's just a, it's a blast. I really love that record. It's just three guys at the height of their passions, having a good time, making music, really, really brilliant stuff. And you can find all of that at nightharvestrecordings.com. We're on Instagram as Night Harvest Recordings. And of course, those albums, as I mentioned, are streaming on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple, and all those places. All right, it is time to go. Thanks again to my guest, Elliot Wilder of The Revenants. Thanks to Peter of Pizzanta Music for my fabulous theme song. Find more from him, as I've said at Night Harvest Recordings, or by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you get your tunes. Finally, thank you for listening. Without you, there wouldn't be much point. Until next time, I hope the night takes you to the same strange and wonderful places it takes me. And remember, if you're not sure what comes next, put a call out into the dark. You never know who's going to pick up. I'll see you next time. <laughs>